I don't know about you, but uh, when I read the stories in the Bible, I'm always the good guy. If I read the story of David and Goliath, I'm never Goliath. I'm always David. If I read the story of, uh, of Joseph and his brothers, I'm never the brothers who uh, throw Joseph in the pit or sell him into slavery. I'm always Joseph who gets thrown in the pit and gets sold into slavery. If I read the stories in the gospel of Jesus really taking the Pharisees to task, I'm never the Pharisees getting the, the, the shakedown. I'm, I'm always the beloved disciple just, just behind Jesus' shoulder looking at those Pharisees with an accusing eye. I'm always the good guy. We like good guy and bad guy stories. And as we, as we open our Bibles to Haggai this morning, um, I thought we'd start with the good guys because that's, that's where we like to start. Um, and there's good guys in this story. There's good guys in this account of the prophecies of Haggai. And we meet them right here in the first chapter in verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of God's people, began to obey the message from the Lord their God when they heard the words of the prophet Haggai, whom the Lord their God had sent, and the people feared the Lord. Now, if you've been traveling with us through the Old Testament, you're well aware that as we get towards the, the later part of the Old Testament, there's a lot of bad guys. If you've ever read 2 Kings or 2 Chronicles, uh, it gets very difficult. It's so depressing. Uh, the prophets come, and the people, the kings, the priests, they just ignore them or they persecute them. Uh, they just go their own way despite the clear instruction of God. Again and again, it seems like by the end, everyone's bad guys. But here we have people who the Lord brings them his word through their prophet Haggai, and immediately they obey. They're good guys, like me, right? To understand exactly what's going on here, we need to uh, back up in the story a little bit. And uh, this is now probably... Uh, old history to you as we've traveled through much of the Old Testament. But you understand that the uh, first the northern kingdom was, was overtaken and then the southern kingdom by the Babylonians and they were, they were dispersed across the land, all of God's people. And for 70 years, uh, that's how it was. It seemed like the story of God and Abraham's people was over. Uh, the people became comfortable. They built their crops, and they built their vineyards, and they built their houses, and they, they learned something new that they'd never done before. They built synagogues in their communities to worship God and read the scriptures. And, and they, uh, they were pretty comfortable after 70 years. You, you'd think in captivity it would be different. But, but when the call came to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, the scriptures tell us that only a remnant returned. The majority remained where they were. It doesn't tell us whether that was good or bad. It just was. But there was a, a select group, a small group of people among the, among the captives that, that returned. And we're, we're right there in the story when we come to, to Haggai where, where um, they returned with a vision, with a passion. 
I mean, they left comfortable houses. They left uh, a couple of generations of development of their farms and their communities. They left their families. They, they left behind what was good. And they, they, they traveled across dangerous lands uh, to a place that was desolate. Jerusalem had not been rebuilt. There was no crops. There was no vines. There was no houses. There was nothing. So they went from a relatively comfortable situation to nothing. And why did they do that? They had one purpose in mind. Rebuild the temple of Jehovah. Reestablish the day of atonement, the the articles of the law, in order to worship God. It would be a focal point, even for those who were scattered across the nations, those followers of God, they would still have this focal point if they could rebuild the temple. That was their goal. That's why they gave up their lives at so much cost. And when Haggai came to them, his message was very simple. It could be summarized in just one verse. We can look at it in uh, chapter 1, verse 4. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses? Well, this house lies in ruins. You see what happened? They returned to Jerusalem for one purpose, to build God's house. And when God called Haggai to speak to them, their priorities had changed. He asked them, why are you living in luxurious houses? Why have you got vineyards and gardens and crops and your herds of sheep are increasing? But my house lies in ruins. You've barely started the foundations. How did that happen? The accusation that Haggai makes is one of priorities. Their priorities had shifted. And here's the thing. This is why it's a difficult story for me to read. Because I like to be the good guy, not the bad guy. But in this story, they're the same guys. They're the same ladies. They're the same people. The good guys and the bad guys. These were the good guys. These were the ones who were willing to leave family and home and gardens and travel across the the wilderness lands back to Jerusalem, which was desolate, and rebuild the temple. These were the good guys. And somehow, their priorities had drifted to the place where they were spending all their time and all their energy and all their money on their own things, their own houses. And God's house lay in ruins. They're the same people. So we can summarize it, I think, quite easily. In Haggai, God says, first things first. Get your priorities straight. You see, God never said they shouldn't build houses. They obviously had to plant gardens if they were going to eat and not starve in that desolate place. They had to build houses if they were going to survive the winter. They, they had to do those things. They weren't unimportant. They weren't completely off the priority list. But in God's economy, they were second priorities, not first. 
And slowly these things had become first priority and God's house had become second priority. And, and God raised up Haggai to speak to them. Now you might ask why. I mean, there's all kinds of excuses, right? There's all kinds of reasons why this happens with you and with me and happened with the people in Haggai's day. Why did they change their priorities? I don't think they ever sat down and decided, you know what, I don't, we're just going to change this around. I think it happens bit by bit, little bit by little bit, without even noticing. But Haggai gives us the reason, and, and, and he gives it to us in uh, Haggai chapter 2, verse 1, and, 1 to 3. Then on, then on October 7 of the same year, the Lord sent another message from the prophet Haggai. This is to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Jeshua, son of Zehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of God's people there in the land. Does anyone remember this temple, this house, this temple, in its former splendor? How in comparison does it look to you now? It must seem like nothing at all. It's only 80 years since the temple was destroyed. It's possible. Some people think Haggai might have been a a young boy when the temple was destroyed and vaguely remembered its glory. And now he's back. We don't know if he was was one of those or not, but it's reasonable to think there was people who'd returned to see the land, see their homes once again. But they knew about the temple that Solomon built. The temple that Solomon built was so impressive, so glorious, that kings and queens from other countries traveled across to see this amazing building, this amazing worship, this amazing practice. Nothing had been built. They had nothing to compare to the glory of God's temple. It was beyond imagination. You had to see it with your own eyes. And when these people remained to rebuild the house of the Lord... And they looked at the resources they had and their leaders uh, marched out and and marked out the foundations on the ground. And they looked at the drab stone compared to uh, Solomon's marble. They looked at the small bit of gold and ivory that they had. And they thought to themselves, compared to what Solomon built, this is nothing. It's not impressive. It's not worthwhile. It couldn't possibly have an impact. And so their priorities shifted to their own houses. If, not, if God isn't going to do something big with us, what's the difference? Maybe, maybe we should just you know, make sure we have a better crop. Maybe if we, ha- if we, we plant a vineyard and, and make some really good wine, we can sell it back to Babylon and make more money, and then we can build a better temple. All kinds of reasons, and it all stems from, according to Haggai, according to God's word from Haggai, because they got the impression that it was nothing at all, that it was unimportant. Can you relate to that feeling? I wonder. Let me share with you a few stories. People who've come to my study. I remember one person came to me said they'd been reading Romans. And they read Romans chapter 6, verse 4, where it says, For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. 
And they said to me, I remember my baptism years ago. I was so certain of my priorities. This new life was going to be my first thing above everything else. I was going to dedicate my life. It was everything. And they came to me now and they said, I was reading that verse and I realized how far I've drifted from that commitment. What happened? How do I get back? remember another couple came to me one time, and, and they too were reading, they were remembering. At their wedding, the pastor had read from Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. And that had been their, their, their verse as a couple. They were going to love each other, they were going to honor each other, and not just for each other, but for Christ's glory. Their marriage was going to be about Jesus. It was going to be a, a shining example in the world of what real love, the kind of love that God has, between two people. And now they were doing nothing but fighting and arguing and turning the cold shoulder. And they said, Pastor, what happened? We were so committed. We were so focused. And now this. I can tell you my own story. I remember, um, some of you might even know, Redberry Bible Camp over by Saskatoon. I was a kid, I was a camper there, and the preacher was preaching from Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. In the chapel services, I I didn't really think about it too much. I heard the message, but I I just carried along. And then uh, towards the end of the week, we were playing uh, uh, campus-wide Capture the Flag. And my my plan was when the horn ran out, Rung, I was going to run as fast as I could towards the opposite side. When I was getting close to the middle line, I was going to find a good hiding spot. And then when the other team all ran past me, I was going to get up and go and get their flag. So I hunkered down in my little hiding spot. And I was waiting for all the people to run past so that I could have a clear run at the, at the enemy's flag. And as I was sitting there trying to be quiet, I believe God brought back to my mind those words, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And I started thinking about that. And I started thinking about my life. And I started praying. And you know what? The horn for dinner ran before I got, rang before I got out of my hiding spot. But I made a commitment there in that little quiet spot. I'm going to do this. This is my first priority above everything else. I don't care if the other kids in school tease me or what happens. I'm going to love the Lord my God with all my heart and all my soul and all my strength. And how many times since have I read those words and thought, what happened? There's so many other things I'm loving more strongly than God. I had a person come to me. uh, They'd been on a mission trip. While they were there, they'd read from 1 John chapter 4. If someone says, love God, but hates his fellow believer, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? They come back from that trip with absolute commitment. They were going to love God's people. No, no sacrifice too big, no cost too high. They were going to love God's people. A couple of years later, what happened? I don't even know who's needy in our church. I've lost track. And why do we drift? Is this not at least part of the motivation? What what difference does my 
little efforts for God's kingdom make. The church doesn't even notice if I'm absent. It seems like nothing at all. What difference does our little church out here in the country, far away from anything important, make? How could it have an impact in the world? It seems like nothing at all. It's not that important. Yeah, we keep it running. Yeah, we keep going. But but what's the big deal if we don't put our whole heart into it? What's the big deal if other things steal our priorities from time to time? What difference could it make? It seems like nothing. It seems so unimportant. And Haggai says to us, or God says to us through the prophet Haggai, if we read, put first things first. Now, I know this is Thanksgiving, and I'm not preaching a Thanksgiving message. But I just want to give you a little pointer here. How is it that Paul and Silas sang when their feet were in shackles and their backs were bleeding? How is it that Job praised God when everything he owned was taken from him? It's because nothing they valued as first position had been taken from them. That's the road to being a person who can praise God and be thankful in all circumstances. If first things are first, nobody can take anything from you that will cause you to become bitter and sad. Because you still have Jesus. You still have God. You still have heaven. You can still be faithful. All the things you've put in first place cannot be taken from you. So you can always be thankful. But as soon as, if you find yourself not being thankful, chances are second place things have moved, have drifted into first place. And when you see the things you've put in first place in danger of being taken from you, you complain instead of being thankful. That's the secret to being thankful in all circumstances. I wonder if it seems like no big deal, like it's just a small thing. It's not like God didn't say we shouldn't go to work and make our living and raise our families and do all the things we do. All those things we need to do. In fact, God instructs us to do them. So what's the big deal if they kind of drift into first place from time to time? What difference does it make? It seems like such a small thing. Well, I wonder... I wonder if you took Goliath to a river and showed him a million little round stones and picked up one and said, Goliath, what do you think? He might have said, "Eh, it's such a small thing. Couldn't possibly make a difference. But it did in God's hands. I wonder what the Midianites would have said if you asked them if 300 men under a shabby unimpressive general named Gideon if God could make them into a big thing ah, just a small thing insignificant couldn't make a difference I wonder if you asked a widow who came to the temple with a few pennies and put them in the offering if she thought she was doing something big or something small Yet because Jesus pointed her out, we still tell her story to this day and she inspires us. It was no small thing. I wonder if you asked Jonah in the calm of the first day on the ship to look overboard, 
see a school of a million fish. Could God make something big out of one of those? Insignificant, one fish out of a million. Three days later, he had a different opinion. Talking about fish, I wonder if you asked a small boy as he left home with five loaves and two fish if his lunch was significant. He probably said, ah, it's, it's just a small thing. Unimportant. I wonder if you asked a widow in Elijah's time that had a jug with just a very little bit of oil left in the bottom. The last thing she owned. If she would have told you it's significant. But we know the story. I wonder if you asked a Galilean fisherman who'd been fishing all day and caught nothing if it could possibly be significant to put the nets on the other side of the boat. What difference could it make? You see, the God we serve is in the business of making things that we think are insignificant into the most important things of all. It's not a small thing. What you have to contribute to the kingdom of God, what you have to contribute as God builds his new covenant temple out of the living stones of the believers of Wainwright, it's no small thing. Like the Israelites, like the remnant in Haggai's day, we could look at what we're doing and think, it's unimpressive. No one will ever notice. Nothing will ever come of it. It's such a small thing. It doesn't really matter if from time to time our priorities drift. We don't come to church for a few days. But those are ancient stories. The question is, does God still do these kinds of things? And I want to tell you one story. It's not exactly modern, but it's fairly recent, maybe within some of your lifetimes. On September 4th, 1971, a woman who lived alone on the shores of Haida Gwaii off the coast of British Columbia woke up in the morning and noticed that the storm that had been raging for a few days had abated overnight, and it was calm. And one of the reasons she lived there so close to the beach in the face of the storms was because she loved beachcombing. And after every storm, in fact almost every day, but particularly after storms, she went out on the beaches because there would often be treasures washed up on the shore. And so on September 4th, 1971, she woke up. It was calm. The storms had been raging. And she said, ah, wonder what I'll find on the beach. She got up early and she went out onto the beach to look for treasures. What she found on the beach was a grown man, half naked, bleeding from several spots, barely alive, who couldn't speak a word of English. Well, she quickly got him to the local hospital. He was quickly airlifted to Terrace, to the bigger hospital, and, and, uh, and he survived. It turns out his name was Sergei Kordovka. He was a high-level KGB officer who later on had become a naval officer. And he'd been on a ship, a, a Soviet warship off the coast of Canada when the storm had come in. And the ship was in danger of being overwhelmed by the storm. And Sergei was the radio officer, and he had radioed the Canadian Coast Guard to ask permission to come into Canadian waters to shelter from the storm. 
They were given permission to come in among the islands of Haida Gwaii to shelter from the storm, and they'd sailed in there. And uh, in, the, in the early morning, uh, or sorry, I'm looking at my notes, it was evening. In the, in the evening of September 3rd, when the storm had begun to, to lessen, uh, orders were given to, to get back out into international waters before an international incident was created. And uh, just as at 10 p.m., September 3rd, just as the ship was, was building up power to get back into international waters, Sergi jumped overboard. You might ask why. If you asked him why, he would have said a name. And the name was Natasha Zudnova. What was her influence? Well, many years before, when Sergi first joined the KGB, he had been given a small band of, uh, of hooligans to be in charge of, and their job was to eradicate Christianity from the city. They did a good job. They would get their intelligence together. They would find out where the Christians were meeting in secret in the middle of the night and quietly singing their hymns and saying their prayers and reading scriptures from little handwritten sheets that they'd gathered together and quickly written a few verses on that they could bring so their Bibles wouldn't be confiscated. And uh, when they found, when Sergi and his, his guys, his KGB guys, found out where they were meeting, they'd burst into the place and beat everyone up. And, and, uh, and um, the strategy was, was very simple. Most of the people, if not all of the people, meeting in Christian meetings were old. They felt if they beat up all these old people who had this ridiculous belief in God, the young people would never join. They never become Christians, and within one generation there would be no Christians in all of the Soviet Union. This was their strategy. Sometimes they beat people that so badly that they died. There was no whatever whatever they did was okay. Well one night they burst into a small gathering of fifteen people who were trying to quietly sing. There was a young girl there. They were surprised. There was usually no young people. They, they didn't really target her. Uh, she was one of the ones they were trying to save from this religious ridiculousness. And, and so they beat up all the older people. And he did notice that, that the young girl had, uh, had fallen during the incident and hit her head on the side of a table and was bleeding when they left, though they hadn't really touched her. He figured that would be enough for her. Three days later, they burst into another meeting of Christians and there she was with a bandage over her ear. Well, Sergi, as the leader of the gang, thought ah, he had to take matters into his own, ta- own hands. And he gave Natasha a beating. He wasn't sure she would survive. He didn't think she, he'd ever see her again. Three weeks later, they burst into another church gathering. And there was Natasha. He couldn't, he couldn't figure that out. He... Instead of beating her, he took her into headquarters. He thought, I, we gotta, if we can't beat Christianity out of her, certainly we can interrogate it out of her. And he sat with her for hours. He expected that what he would find was a young country girl that had somehow come into the city and just wasn't educated, didn't know any better, and so for some reason was believing in God. And 
That's what he thought he'd found, but what he found instead was a younger version of himself. This young girl had straight A's in school. She was top of her band of the young communists uh, group and, and, and slated for leadership. And then somewhere along the line, she had encountered Jesus Christ and said, I'm going to make that my first priority, the kingdom of God. And despite the beatings, she continued to return to the church services, knowing that she'd never have a good job in the Soviet Union if she was a Christian, knowing that she could be beaten to death, knowing that it would always be a danger. And yet as he battered her and battered her, she never stopped smiling towards him and praying for him. From that day forward, she continued to show up in the Christian gatherings, and Sergi always protected her. He didn't let the other guys beat her up. And they, they asked him, why, Sergi? Why not her? And he would simply say, she has something we don't have. Years later, he joined the Navy, and actually he did it on purpose. He got himself on a ship that he knew was slated to sail near Canada. And the whole time, months on the ship, he was in the gym making his body hard so that he could survive the ocean. And when the storm came and the ship was moved into the closer to land, he saw his chance, and he jumped ship. Not knowing if he'd live or die, he almost died. If that woman hadn't found him, when she did, he would have died. The first thing he did when he got out of the hospital was he found a Christian church. They found him a Russian Bible, and he became a Christian. He wrote his autobiography. He wrote his story. It's called The Persecutor. You can still read it. And... Uh, One of the things that happened is uh, he, was, he, he talked to Canadian and U.S. Uh, officials in the military and in the uh, Secret Service, and, and they, they learned from him uh, what was happening, the internal workings of the KGB, him and others. He's a small part of the piece, but certainly he contributed to the strategies and, and methods that were used by Western countries in that time in the Cold War. But I think far more important than that he's, is he went around uh, in stadiums and churches and he spoke and told his testimony to Christians. And because of his story, thousands and thousands of Christians across North America began to pray for the Natashas throughout Russia, throughout the Soviet Union. And I believe it's those prayers that changed the tides of history. Sergi didn't want to name his book The Persecutor. And later on, in a, in, a, in a second edition, he was allowed to name it what he wanted to name it. His title was Forgive Me, Natasha. Don't you think Natasha could have so easily convinced herself? It's just a small thing. I could keep my faith to myself. I don't have to go to those meetings. I don't have to seek to be with other Christians. And we complain about masks and hand washing. 
think she had bigger obstacles to worshiping with others. How easy it would have been to convince herself it's just a small thing. But if she hadn't gone, Sergi would have never met her. If he hadn't met her, he would have never jumped ship. If he hadn't jumped ship, his testimony that caused thousands and thousands of Christians across North America to pray for Russia would have never happened. You don't know what God's going to do with the small thing that he's given you if you put him first. You never know. Our God is in the business of taking little things and making them big. Big. 